Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. What will the American city look like a generation from now? While cities have always been hubs of opportunity, urban landscapes have faced an onslaught of difficulties in recent years. Soaring costs of living, the economic downturn of a global pandemic, and a recent uptick in violent crime are straining America's urban engines of productivity. And trends toward remote work have some wondering whether cities are over. What can cities do to meet these challenges? And how can we prepare for the next pandemic? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by Edward Glazer. Ed is the chairman of the Department of Economics at Harvard University and co-author with David Cutler of Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation, released this week. Ed, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. At the World Fairs in 1939 and 1964, both in New York, there was a ride called the Futurama Ride. And it gave visitors kind of a glimpse of what America would look like in the near future. And particularly want the 1964 World's Fair, I think was the most popular attraction. Let me, let me just read, because listeners love when I read, uh, of what they said the city of tomorrow would look like. Plazas of urban living rise over freeways. Vehicles, electronically paced travel routes are remarkably safe, swift, and efficient. Towering terminals serve sections of the city, make public transportation more convenient, provide ample space for private cars, and from a lower level covered moving sidewalks, which radiate to shopping areas that are truly marketplaces of the world. Its traditions and faiths preserved, there is a new beauty and new strength in the city of tomorrow. That was 1964. By 1975, Hollywood is making gritty movies about the decline of New York. The headline, you know, New York dropped dead. We're not going to bail you out of bankruptcy. I'm sure you've been asked a lot, you know, our city's over because of the pandemic. And that's really the wrong question. Cities can go very bad and not be, quote unquote, over. New York wasn't over, even though things were very rough in the 70s and 80s, and it came back. I'm not going to ask you, our cities over? What I want to ask you is, how can cities survive this pandemic and flourish going forward? I think it's great that you took us back to the great industrial designer, Norman Bel Geddes, and the Robert Moses-led uh, World Fair of 1964, uh, because in, in, in some sense, that was a, you know, a high point of optimism. Uh, for the American city, also for the integration of the car into the American city. Now, what then happened in the 1970s was the collision of two things which have an eerie resemblance to today, one of which was an increase in mobility of people who could you know, take their cars and go out to the suburbs, thanks to, um, thanks to Robert Moses in part, and, and the cars would be streamlined, which is thanks in part to the industrial design of Norman Bel Geddes. Um, and firms, of course, could relocate their factories to lower cost, cost, cost areas aided by the interstate highway system. Um, and so that mobility uh, made it easier than ever to exit. At the same time, a heightened awareness of urban inequities 
led city governments to think that they could treat their firms, could treat their residents as a piggy bank that they could use to fund their uh, progressive dreams. That combination of political redistribution, catering not to the mobile and talented, but catering towards the most disadvantaged, which has so much to like about it. But when the, the talented are mobile, they can just run away. And that's indeed what they did. And so New York was hemorrhaging industrial jobs. I mean, the largest industrial cluster in the United States in the 1950s was not automobile production in Detroit. It, it, it was garment production in New York City. Hundreds of thousands of those jobs disappeared overnight, right? And then on top of that, you had you know, wealthier New Yorkers who were leaving for suburbs where they could get public schools that they liked better, where the crime was, was lower. And so this, co this combination turned into a really difficult time for cities where it really seemed as if places like New York and Boston and Detroit and Seattle, for goodness sakes, were headed for the trash heap of history. I mean, let's not forget two jokers put a billboard on the highway leaving Seattle asking the last person to leave the city to please turn out the lights because no one could imagine a Seattle with a smaller Boeing, right? Now, how does that relate to today? Well, there are two things that are going on right now that are important in cities. One of which is the increased mobility made possible by telecommuting, made possible by Zoom. That's not gonna replace the office, but perhaps for some of the wealthiest, perhaps for some of the most successful firms, it makes it easier to imagine moving away. On top of that, you have the threat of illness. And of course, the fact that some cities seem like you know, they're on the verge of being taken over by progressive leadership who think that policing is, you know, a thing of the past and totally unnecessary, who think that we should again be taxing the rich in order to deal with the problems of the poor. Now, I believe very strongly that cities can do a better job with their policing. I believe very strongly that cities can do a better job of making sure that there are places of opportunity and upward mobility. But if they decide that they're going to ignore the ability of the talented to exit, None of that's going to happen. I started off by taking us back to the 60s. In the book, you go back much further than that. Could you walk us through the history of what happens to urban areas when they're hit by plagues, going back to ancient Athens? Sure. Why, why not go back to the plague of Athens, which is our first well-documented urban plague? Because Thucydides, one of the two fathers of history, was actually there and, and described the plague. Um, so the backstory for this, of course, is that Athens is doing all that you could possibly ask a city to be doing, right? It's a place of unbelievable creativity where dense urban streets bring together people of unbelievable talent, right? The creators of philosophy, the creators of drama, the creators of architecture, the creators of sculpture, uh, the people who gave us democracy themselves, right? There's this these chains of collaborative creativity that can happen in cities. And I can't think of any place that does that better than fifth century Athens. But Athens very success uh, occasions the envy of its more rural neighbor, Sparta. And so starting in 431 BC, uh, the Peloponnesian War begins. Now, Pericles, the canny leader of Athens' democracy, has a plan, which is he's gonna summon all the Athenians behind the city walls, which he's gonna trust to protect 
the city from the Spartan soldiers, from the Spartan hoplites. And then he will take advantage of Athens' superiority at naval warfare to send out his ships to harass the coast of uh, the Peloponnesian Peninsula where the Spartans live. So this strategy is perfectly sound militarily. The walls hold up well against the hoplites, but the walls can't keep out the disease that comes in through um, through the the, uh, the the port of Piraeus. Um, and the disease wreaks absolute havoc, perhaps killing a quarter of Athens' population. And there are, this highlights two great weaknesses that cities have when it comes to disease, which is still true in 2020, which is that cities are the nodes on the global lattice of trade and travel. They're always the ports of entry for goods, for people, for ideas, and for diseases, right? And so it was with Athens. Secondly, diseases spread more quickly when people are close to one another, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that density is itself dangerous, but certainly it's really important to be able to isolate yourself from other people to stop the spread of disease. My own estimate suggests that for every 10% reduction in trips in New York in 2020, there was a 20% reduction in COVID cases during the months of April uh, and May. And so this really derailed um, Athens is, is, you know, success as a city. It soldiered on for 25 years before losing. Athens didn't disappear, but it was not, it was, it was not this place that you saw this, just, you know, this flowering it, of creativity and connectivity. That was absolutely, gone. that, that was really gone. And, you know, the, the plague of, of Justinian, which hit Constantinople a thousand years later was if anything, even more devastating. That was the first appearance of the black death on European shores, but, you know, and they were devastating in part because they hit societies that were already in flux. They hit societies that were already vulnerable. For the last 650 years, however, mostly our cities have been pretty darn resilient. Um, and you know, one of the, the epics that we detail in the book is the 19th century, which really shows city government at its best. This is the moment, in some sense, where governments stop being killers. Uh, you know, if you think about what governments did in the centuries before 1800, they pretty much fought wars. Sometimes they're defensive wars, which, you know, you can justify that certainly. Sometimes they're offensive wars, but they're pretty much in the, in the death business. Over the course of the 19th century, city governments spent enormous sums in things like sewers and aqueducts in order to fight pandemic. They built institutions, they created incentives to induce people to connect to the network, and they turned government into something that was far more benevolent. It wasn't easy, but it was an enormous epoch uh, in, in, the, in the history of, of government and public change. It really happened in response to disease. And those investments made cities, you know, by 1920, almost as healthy as rural areas. In fact, over the last 30 years, New York has had a life expectancy that's two to three years higher than the rest of the country. Um, and that of course happened because of these, uh, these investments. But that very much showed a pragmatic urban commitment to actually fighting these demons that come with density and not a tendency to fall into fractious disagreement or you know pitting one against another. So over the past century, a city like New York has developed better sanitation, but its economy has become more about service. The economy has become more dependent on face-to-face -face interactions. Is that something we need to be thinking about going forward? Absolutely, James. It reminds us of just how economically vulnerable we are to this kind of pandemic. You know, if I take you back to the Black Death, 1350 in Europe, you know, human catastrophe, absolutely devastating, right? Losing maybe a third of Europe's population. But for the survivors, right, they ended up being richer. 
because in fact, in an agricultural economy, having a higher ratio of land relative to people, that means wages go up. That means the amount of food available goes up. And so Europe gets richer over the end of the 14th century because its population has shrunk. And in some sense, that extra wealth sets the stage for the urban renaissance of the 15th century. The influenza pandemic of 1918-1919 was a short, sharp shock to the economy, as Francois Veld of the the Chicago Federal Reserve Board has illustrated. Um, But it wasn't all that devastating. It didn't last, in part because the demand for the industrial products that were the heart of this economy wouldn't disappear just because there was a plague. But I mean, no one thinks you're going to get, you know, a disease from an icebox. A hundred years later, however, those industrial jobs have disappeared and been replaced by urban service sector jobs. The one-fifth of the employed labor force in 2019 that worked in leisure, hospitality, and retail trade, right? And what happened was for millions and millions of American workers, 32 million of them, in fact, right, the ability to provide service with a smile provided an employment safe haven when the factory jobs disappeared. And yet that smile turns into a source of peril rather than pleasure in a time of pandemic. And those jobs can disappear in a heartbeat, which is exactly what we saw. Uh, And so we proved to be incredibly vulnerable to the pandemic. Now, of course, we dealt with this with federal spending on an enormous scale. I mean, I remember a time when, you know, spending a couple of trillion dollars to fight a recession would seem like it was a pretty big deal. Uh, Apparently, we've crossed that Rubicon. Um, But it doesn't really dispel the fundamental weakness of our economy to this type of pandemic, which I think is one of the reasons why our governments going forward really need to spend almost whatever it takes to make sure that this doesn't happen again, to make sure that this pandemic is a one-time occurrence. Even without mentioning pandemics, there's a lot to say about the problems facing American cities. And we don't seem to be doing a lot of problem solving when it comes to housing costs and equality and congestion, are we? No, that's right. That's right. And that sets the that makes us weaker in response to the pandemic. So, uh, you know, I've got two chapters that focus on this, one which focuses specifically on uh, the high cost of housing and the gentrification battles. Now, I think there is an easy policy fix for this, which is just to allow more housing to be built. Right. And the the narrative that I give is very much inspired by Manker Olson, which is that in the U.S. over the past 30, 40, 50 years, we have allowed insiders to become increasingly empowered in lots of different ways, right? Whether or not it's occupational licensing or excessive business regulations. But, you know, my favorite example is housing, where if you go back to the 1960s, if you owned a plot of land, you were pretty much allowed to put up anything reasonable on it. 50 years later, you know, in lots of parts of coastal America, pretty much all your neighbors have veto rights over anything you might want to do with that property. And we've made this change in an incremental way, community by community, and we've imposed a a giant web of housing regulations uh, on the coastal parts of the country that radically restrict our ability to build new housing. I mean, New York stayed affordable in the 1920s because it built 100,000 units a year because it was a city that still catered to outsiders. Now we have cities that cater only to uh, to insiders, which may mean rich homeowners. But this this change in thinking, which is that you know we're going to protect people from any harm, also means that you know if you're in a neighborhood which you know 
you're, you're losing out because your rents are going up. Instead of saying to yourself, you know what really needs to happen, we need to build more housing in Los Angeles as a whole, which will stop my rents going up. You say, oh, I just don't want any strangers coming into my neighborhood, right? So it becomes even more insider uh, oriented. And we really need to remember that cities are at their best when they are providing opportunity for outsiders for people who are coming to there without anything. And real affordability does not mean some small number of special affordable units that have been allocated to the lucky few, or you know, a few people who have benefited by 30 years of rent control. Real affordability means that anyone can come to the city and rent an apartment at a reasonable price. So I, I have one chapter about the closing of the metropolitan frontier and this triumph of insiders over outsiders and the battles over gentrification in uh, Los Angeles. But then the other two things we talk about specifically relate to limited upward mobility in cities, which we think relate to particularly to schools. Okay, let me jump back to housing for a second. You've described a pretty simple solution, which is build more. We have an obvious problem and a classic econ 101 solution. Does the fact that we're not building suggest that this is a problem that can't be solved politically? If we can't make our cities denser with more housing, maybe we just need to have more high productivity cities spread across the country. What do you think? Well, uh, you know, I think competition among cities has a lot to recommend itself. I think historically, that's how it's worked in the U.S. Historically, we've started new cities in, in the Sun Belt that have been oriented around new technologies, cars in particular, and uh, have, you know, catered to, um, catered to, to outsiders. Um, Yes, I think that's part of what happens. And there's still parts of America where you can still build. Um, but, you know, even there, even in Texas, right, the past 10 years have been very heady days for Texas real estate, which doesn't mean that you can't still build on the edges of Houston. But the areas that are close to the city center, whether or not it's in Austin or in, uh, in Dallas, or Fort Worth, those places have become much more restricted. And, you know, when Texas starts to regulate, I start getting scared. So uh, I'm not willing to just accept that we're going to go to new places. I think we do need to fight this. And, you know, it really does create costs for the economy as a whole. Forget Houston. Maybe they'll be Des Moines will be the new tech hub. <laughs> but, you know, it really does create costs when you have, you know, these incredibly productive parts of America like Silicon Valley that have tiny amounts of new population growth because they've decided to regulate out change. They've decided to regulate away new construction. And consequently, people end up locating in areas that are much less productive. You know, the work of Peter Ganong and Danny Shoag shows that prior to 1960, Americans, especially lower income Americans, typically moved to places that are higher wages. That stopped over the last five, 50 years. And that's a bad thing. We really should continue this thing that people move to opportunity in America. And uh, I cut you off before where we were about, about to talk about education and upward mobility. Sure. So education and crime are the other two that I want to say something about. So um, education, I, I think we need to start with the humility to learn here that, you know, I've been on the edges of the education reform movement for the last 20 odd years. Um, lots of things have been tried, lots of money has been spent, and very little has moved in terms of the dial. Uh, there are some charter schools that do amazing things, and, and that movement should continue. But um, I think it's, it's likely that we're going to need new approaches. One of the things that we push in the book is doing more experimental work with wraparound forms of education that, you know, essentially do an end run around the teachers union by providing, you know, after school weekends, summer programs in, let's say, vocational training. And the beautiful thing about vocational training is because you know what you're trying to teach, you can have real pay for performance. So you can say, basically, if you don't train a functional plumber, you're not getting paid. 
And so you can competitively source it and you have to worry much less about micromanaging exactly what people are doing. And you're, you're trying to create a product that is far less amorphous than trying to train a, a, an American citizen. And so we can leave high schools to go about their, their business. I mean, ideally, they'll improve as well. But we can put a whole bunch of incremental money into training people with usable skills for the real job market. I liked how you described this. You know, let's say, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to spend vastly more in school. We're going to spend $100 billion. But we really don't know how to spend that $100 billion in an effective way. And that's why you said you, you were calling for an Apollo program rather than a Marshall plan. A Marshall plan suggests you know right where to put that money. The Apollo program, when they started, they didn't know exactly how to get to the moon. And so that's why you were calling, you're calling for an Apollo program, which to me is about trial and error and experimentation and discovery, rather than just uh, these are the programs we know need more funding. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, humility is where you start on this. The, um, and I think that's, that's absolutely critical. Now, with COPS, I think actually I am more hopeful in part because unlike schools, the functioning of police departments changed massively in our lifetimes. Right. And if we compare the 1980s when, you know, America, American cities seemed like they were, you know, completely lost to crime with most of the last 20 years, it's really been a huge difference. And it's, there's really been a revolution in public safety. Now, that wasn't free. It both required more spending and it also only occurred with the you know, accompaniment of massive amounts of incarceration, often of relatively minor offenses, and uh, in some cases, police that have been far too um, brutal towards their, um, towards their citizens. Now, going forward, I think there's no way of getting around a dual mandate. So the view that you're just going to defund the police and anything good is going to happen from that seems like absolute madness to me, right? That, in fact, we want our police to do more, not less. We want them to stop crime just as much you know, tomorrow as we did yesterday. But we also want them to make sure that they treat all the citizens with a reasonable modicum of, of respect, with a reasonable amount of decency. So that requires two things. First of all, you need to give police chiefs targets, quantitative targets of you know, what, you, what you're asking for in terms of this respect and decency. Now, that, that means you probably need some form of regular customer surveys about how people are feeling about their relationship with the police. And you need to hold police chiefs accountable for delivering a reasonable amount of customer satisfaction. But you know, if there's one thing I believe, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? And consequently, you're not going to get the cops to do more by giving them less resources. And police reform really requires a dual mandate and the resources that will enable empowered police chiefs to get it done. How, how do we make our cities and our society more resilient uh, to the next pandemic? Uh, how will we be better prepared next time? So I think this is something that the city governments can't do. I mean, everything about cops or even schools can be done at the state or even the local level. Uh, but in order to pandemic-proof our world, we really need national, international action. And uh, the idea that my co-author, David Cutler, who's a health economist and I push forward, is something that we call NATO for health, with the idea that this really requires global cooperation and global investments in things like preemptive vaccines, global surveillance. Um, and you know, this means you need an organization which is far less unwieldy than the WHO. So hence NATO, a small number of committed countries that are actually ready to put dollars on the table. And you know, 
It's going to be run by people with scientific expertise, and it's going to be willing to make decisions that are not necessarily politically acceptable to everyone. And we think on top of that, that America will be open for something of a grand bargain around foreign aid. So you've got to worry, or you should worry, that in fact, the low level of, of sanitary infrastructure in many developing world cities is making possible the rise of antibiotic resistant superbugs. Um, now, one way to deal with that is to invest more in pipes, to invest more in sewers, to invest more in, in aqueducts. And the West can fund some of that. Wouldn't be a huge amount of spending, but we could fund some of that. But there should be a quid pro quo, which is that if they're going to be part of this, then they need to agree to surveillance. So they need to make sure that you know new diseases that are popping up are being dealt with. Um, and on top of that, they have to agree to more sanitary rules, separation between humans and animals, for example, uh, wild animals in particular. And so this giant health quid pro quo, we think can be part of the glue that you know, ties NATO for health together. And of course, NATO for health, unlike the WHO, needs to be willing to shut borders when there's a real risk of, of something spreading. So much quicker than we currently saw for uh, COVID-19. So that's one example of, of the kind of international investment uh, that we uh, need. But you know, in some sense, the larger message is, this was a really catastrophic thing for the world, but we had warning signs. Uh, we had warning signs of, of mini outbreaks that occurred, you know, SARS, MERS, Ebola in the past 20 years. Let's not ignore this warning sign. Let's make sure that this is at the top of the national and global priority list going forward. If New York on the 60th anniversary of that 1964 World Fair and they had another Futurama exhibit and you were asked to, to advise them on what a City of Tomorrow exhibit would look like, what sort of insights or advice or foresight uh, would, would you give them about the, uh, what a city can look like you know, a generation from now? I think it is, you know, the, the 1964, we were very focused on physical technology, particularly mobility, right? And uh, mobility can get better in cities, but it's not really what it's about, right? What it's about is a city that's more open for outsiders. And that means less regulation of entrepreneurship, right? As I have often said, it's an outrage that we regulate the entrepreneurship of the rich, which often takes place in cyberspace, so much more than we regulate the entrepreneurship of the poor, which takes place on the ground. So my city of the future would be one in which any new entrepreneur can come and get themselves a permit within a week at a relatively low cost with the help of a centralized permitting office. My city of the future would be one in which people think that cities have educational programs that are the best in the world, right? That in fact, far from fleeing from the city, get better schools, you would come to the city and say, boy, look at this amazing computer programming thing that's going on here. Look how nimbly the city is able to provide lots of different, different things to enable you to adapt to changing, uh, changing circumstances. Um, and it would be a city that actually really, really does a great job of empowering people. It would be a city that has lots of innovation in housing, right? So the physical landscape changes, although some buildings, many buildings may be kept as memories of the past, but it changes in a way that provides affordable space for ordinary people to come in. That might mean mass-produced high-rise dwellings, right, that are made somewhere else and then plopped into space quickly, right? And they could be perfectly attractive. No one's saying that it's going to be a city that's, that's horrible. And I guess, finally, there are going to be cities in which we have figured out sensible policies, whether or not it's congestion pricing or 
NATO for Health to deal with the downsides of density. So we figured out how to make it so that people can move through the cities quickly, not necessarily by building more highways as we imagined in 1964, but by figuring out smart sets of incentives to get people to use mobility in a wise way. And we've also built in a way that enables people to use at least my favorite form of urban mobility to walk to work. And so I guess I'll end on that, which is, you know, my favorite cities are archipelagos of, of different neighborhoods, places where people have lots of different choices about where they can live. And for me, at least, my favorite neighborhoods are ones in which walking is really paramount. So I would hope that that would be part of our Futurama uh, looking forward. My guest today is by Ed Glazer. He and David Cutler are authors of Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation, available now 